Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy City Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy, offering simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Check out their mobile app and interviews of Miles and Brian in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Windy City Historians podcast, episode 17, The Haymarket. Patrick. This summer of 2020 has been a strange time with COVID-19 pandemic raging, as well as civil unrest related to the murder of George Floyd and marches and riots and statues of Christopher Columbus being attacked and removed. Open bridges, quarantines, curfews. It's, yeah, I'm expecting the four horses next, right? (laughs) It's been a really strange time. And as an aside, I should also note, we talked a little bit about the pandemic and the things that we've gone through since March. And recording remotely oftentimes over zoom or that's all we did that's all we did and and so this is a real treat although we are six feet apart on mm-hmm. opposite ends of the studio at the waveland island studios here it's it's a pleasure to do this in person yes for a change it is patrick and i was telling you as we were setting up i almost forgot how to drive here <laughs> well, i had to think about it as you saw it took me a few minutes to remember how to connect and set up the computer to record from our mics and it's relearning how to ride a bike again. And then the last time I was here was after President's Weekend. We recorded some segments and that was just two or three weeks before the shutdown. Yeah, that whole lockdown. Yeah, so this is weird, but I must say it's it's a pleasure to be here. Do you remember that President Trump threatened to intervene this summer with federal troops? Right. But you know, Patrick, This isn't the first time that the federal government has intervened due to violence and unrest in Chicago. In fact, as we learned in this episode, Washington, D.C. has sent federal troops and occupied Chicago seven times in the city's history. That's more than I would have guessed. Federal troops occupied Chicago after the Great Chicago Fire that we talked about in our last episode. However, the other times were due to labor unrest. This topic of the Haymarket riots that happened in 1886 is really a piece of Chicago history I don't know a whole lot about. And so was doing a little bit of research and have some notes, but I feel like this is going to be a fun episode to dig into and learn more about. It has a lot of ramifications that affect our lives. Talking about labor, I think a good place to discuss it is circling back to the podcast we did on the Union Stockyard and Transit Company with Dominic Basiga, because the stockyards were almost a laboratory for labor in Mm -hmm. the 19th century. Most people, when they hear the stockyards, they think about horses and sheep and cattle and hogs. But it was also an important place in the history of unions. The stockyards weren't just about innovation. It was also about the people who worked the production line. So it became an important place for organizing. And one of the groups that had a profound effect at not only the stockyards, but nationwide was the Knights of Labor. And we talked to Dominic Pasiga about this important group. Well, the Knights of Labor were the first massive labor union organization in the country. So they really take off during the Depression of 1877. 
and they organize, and, and they're way ahead of their time to an extent. They, they, for instance, organize women. Most unions don't want women in, in their union, and they, they organize African Americans. Most unions won't accept African Americans. They reach out to Catholic immigrant groups. Terence Powderly, who is Irish himself, did away with secrecy. Uh, like because, the Masons. Right, because they were originally a secret organization, because if you joined a union, you usually got kicked out of your job. So it was a secret organization. Well, the Catholic Church forbids Catholics, or did forbid Catholics to belong to any secret organization like the Masons or the Knights of Labor. So he opens it up, and uh, some of the bishops then support the union. But it becomes very, very successful. It's blamed in part for the 1886 Haymarket riot. At the time, they had nothing to do with what had happened at Haymarket, but it took a blow. It was at that point the largest national labor union in the country. So uh, they would, um, it, it was like the AFL-CIO. Uh, but they had a woman vice president, they had black organizers, etc. And so it was very much ahead of its time. And in Chicago, it organized the stockyard workers for the eight-hour day. The, the movement started in other places, but it certainly held out the longest in the stockyards during that strike of 1886, yeah. And it was interesting that Armour realized that the production line, they could kill just as many beeves in eight hours as they could in ten. Right, but you see the, the workers wanted ten hours pay for eight hours pay. They didn't want to lose those extra two hours, so they wanted to, it also meant a price increase, and Armour wasn't going to do that. That was interesting how the labor leader, Daniel O'Connell, was pretty charismatic at assembling mm-hmm. people to go on strike and whatnot. I thought it was so predictable that Swift like fired him the next day or something. But yeah, it was it was interesting, and also he had uh, the the local Catholic church in Bridgeport in Hamburg, Nativity of Our Lord. The, the, the priest supported the union at the time, and later on things fell apart. The priest was rumored to have actually worked with the meat packers, et cetera. So there was all this kind of... You mean they paid him under the table? Well, that's what some of the people in the neighborhood said. Under the altar? Yeah, under the altar. (laughs) Well, see, I I have no proof of that at all, (laughs) but uh, that was some of the rumors locally. And the thing is that the Knights of Labor were extremely successful in the stockyards because they also organized unskilled workers. But uh, that collapsed, and later the FFL unions came in. The union after the Knights of Labor that was important was the Amalgamated Meat Cutters and Butcher Workmen. And they pull off a strike in 1904, and they actually settle, and then they go out on strike again because it doesn't cover the unskilled workers. Uh-huh. The unskilled workers were taking over more and more of the jobs as the industry was becoming more and more mechanized. Before that, skilled butchers could stop the line. If they walked off, you had nobody to take their place. Yeah, right. you know? But as unskilled were coming more and more on the line, so in a way, it's kind of opposite what's happening now. You've got mechanization that's done away with a lot of the unskilled workers, but now you only have really skilled workers. People can program, et cetera. Yeah. And so it's kind of the opposite. The wheel has turned 180 degrees. But at the time, the unskilled workers received the worst pay. You could work a day or you could get laid off. You could work an hour or you could work 16 hours. It depends on how many cattle or livestock were coming into the stockyards. But if you were a minute late, you lost an hour's pay. So let's revisit the Haymarket. Why was the Knights of Labor held responsible for that? Because it was the largest union at the time. We have May Day all over the world is Labor Day, and the only place it's not is in the United States. And that's because it began here. May Day, 1886, was to be the beginning of the eight-hour strike. And that eight-hour strike was going to be a national strike. Everybody was going to close down, supposedly. The Knights of Labor first opposed it, the leadership of the Knights of Labor did not like strikes. They tried to do boycotts and other kinds of relationships. 
but the rank and file said, no, we're going to do this. And so they forced a hand in the Knights of Labor. So they went on strike along with the other unions and with the anarchist unions who supported the strike. Patrick, that was Dominic Pasiga, and he alluded to the Haymarket bombing when talking about the Knights of Labor being partially blamed for it. We should pause here to talk about Haymarket. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, when putting this program together, I really didn't know what to call it, to be honest. I could have called it the Haymarket Affair or the Haymarket Massacre or the Haymarket Riot. I guess what you call it depends on your perspective. You're kind of giving away your politics when you talk about Haymarket. Yeah, which side are you on? Which is a great yeah, labor question. Yeah, are you a Cubs or a Sox fan? Yeah. I mean, what's the deal? Yeah. So let me pose a riddle to you. Oh, man, I hope I'm ready. What does German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck and the Swedish inventor Alfred Nobel have in common? They're both Europeans. I, that's all I can count. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> I would argue that the two things that Bismarck and Nobel have in common is the Haymarket bombing. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, I think I'm going to have to explain this, right? I, I, yeah, I'm waiting. <laughs> I'm waiting. You, that, that was the pause. Please fill me in. Well, let's begin with Otto von Bismarck. Nowadays, we think of Germany as one country. As you know, after World War II, Germany was divided into two countries with East Germany. Remember all the great athletes? We'd watch the Olympics, and they were always grabbing the medals. Sure. Especially sure. like part in of, the skating. Part of the Soviet sports complex. Right. When, and of Eastern course, Europe. there was always rumors that they were probably doping. Yeah. In the 19th century, Germany wasn't one country. It was several principalities. Right. states. And... Bismarck was the guy that unified all the German principalities in 1871. Anyway, Bismarck did not like socialism, which was, as you know, it was in the air in Europe at the time. It was sort of the trend. And it's sort of ironic because today's Germany is a social democracy. That's right. But at this time, the 1870s, the socialists were being driven out of Germany by Bismarck's rule Mm -hmm. and laws. In fact, numerous Germans were not just socialists but they were anarchists and when they got kicked out of germany guess where they came i would think the united states would be a natural place to emigrate That's right and they came to chicago too the german population in chicago was 25 percent german in the 1870s 80s 90s all the way up to the 20th century so you're saying in that 1870s through about 1900 one in every four chicagoans was german yeah ancestry german speaking Oh, wow. Well, I mean, it sort of explains some of the still strong German neighborhoods of Lincoln Square and that area. So the Germans, most of which were working class, I don't mean like they were just like in a factory. They were skilled laborers, craftsmen, because in Germany in that era, you had a craft. So the Germans came in. So did the anarchists. Of course. So here's a statistic. By 1886, there were more than 2,500 anarchists living in Chicago with 20,000 union supporters. And this brings us back to our next person we discussed, Alfred Nobel. Yes. So Nobel was a Swedish inventor. He had 355 patents in his lifetime. And of course, the most famous of these was dynamite, which he patented in 1867. Nobel's great breakthrough was the use of a blasting cap and a fuse. So, you, you know, you think of a, like a cartoon bomb, you know, that's, 
the bad guy lights the fuse. Right. It's usually a ball, right? Yeah. He kind of came up with that concept of the fuse and the blasting cap, and it made it much safer to use. So this would revolutionize how we build railroads, dams, other types of construction, where one needed to blast through rock. But it was also a revolutionary idea to the revolutionaries and the anarchists. The writer Floyd Dell said that thanks to its inexpensive price and portability, dynamite was, quote, a wonderful new substance which made one poor man the equal of any army. It seemed created as a sign to the oppressors on earth that their reign was not forever to endure. I also just looked up anarchist, and of course the definition was a person who believes in or tries to bring about anarchy. Well, that doesn't help me because it's got the same word in the definition. But anarchy then is a state of a society being freely constituted without authorities or governing body. It may also refer to a society or group of people that entirely rejects a set hierarchy. Anarchy is primarily advocated by individual anarchists who propose replacing government with voluntary institutions. And what better way to do that than with dynamite? Yeah, right. Even General Phil Sheridan said about this bomb-making capability that a bomb, quote, could be carried around in one's pocket with perfect safety, and with it, whole armies and cities could be destroyed. Yeah, it's amazing. Frightening. So now you're equal to an army. Again, it was such a terrifying weapon. That's why Alfred Nobel realized that he had created something really terrible. (laughs) Sure. So as we know, Nobel gave his fortune towards a foundation that would better society, the Nobel Prize. But anyway, back to the dynamite, Bismarck. How are they tied then to the Haymarket riot? Well, as I said, you had Otto von Bismarck kicking the socialists and the anarchists out of Germany through his policies. Okay. You have Alfred Nobel with his dynamite. Yep. You fuse the German anarchists with the dynamite in Chicago, you get the Haymarket bombing. All right. I'm simplifying it. I'm sure that labor lawyers and historians listening are pulling out their hair with my simplification, but it's just a way to try to say we have the Germans and we got the dynamite. We got the anarchists. Well, and just like any event in history, there's this greater context that leads up to these moments. So this relationship between socialists and Germans and anarchists and labor unions, it certainly led to strange bedfellows, you can imagine. Sure. I'll give you an example. One of them that comes to mind is Albert Parsons. He was from Alabama. He was a former Confederate cavalryman who eventually moved north to Chicago and he worked as a typesetter and he became a socialist. Mm-hmm. Later, he became an anarchist and editor of the local chapter of the International Working People's Association, or the IWPA, which was an anarchist group. So he was an American. So you have this Confederate anarchist, Parsons, who soon becomes friends with another anarchist, August Spies. Yeah, and he's German. He's German-American. Okay. Who, although he was an American, he was editor of the German-language newspaper, Albiter Zitung. Yes. And guess what, Patrick? To show off his anarchist street cred, he had a pipe bomb on his desk in his office. Okay, so you got Parsons, the Confederate, and Spies. And working together, they were really able to freak out the rich elite with their anarchist tactics. For example, on Thanksgiving Day, 1884, they organized a rally down Prairie Avenue where the wealthy Chicagoans lived. This is two years before Haymarket. That's right. Ringing doorbells, harassing residents, asking for food. 
One anarchist paper wrote that the hoi polloi stared out of the windows of their mansions, quote, at their future executioners, unquote. Future executioners. Violence was not an idle threat. So here's an example. Johann Most, who was a German anarchist, gave a speech in Chicago in 1882, and he says, quote, the best that one can do with such fellows as Jay Gould and Vanderbilt is to hang them on the nearest lamppost. Now, Gould and Vanderbilt, these were railroad tycoons, okay? These were the Bill Gates and Jeff Bezoses of their day. Right. The next year, 1885, the Board of Trade opens, and the anarchists up their game, parading around the new building. So as Dominic Pesiga told us earlier in the program, the year 1886 was the year of labor unions fighting for the eight-hour day, led by the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions. That year, they had led over 1,500 strikes nationwide, which made up over 600,000 workers. So in Chicago that May, August Spies, the anarchist publisher, led a march up Michigan Avenue with 80,000 workers, as soldiers with Gatling guns watched from the rooftops. But it was peaceful. Not so the strike later that week at the McCormick Reaper factory. The workers had gone out on strike and Cyrus McCormick II, the son of the founder, brought in the Pinkertons to suppress the strike. I mean, they're basically hired police. So on May 3rd, August Spees was holding another rally near the factory. And during his speech, a bell began to ring, signaling a shift change from the factory. Several people in the crowd began to move towards the McCormick factory to harass the scab. Workers there. This led to the police moving in and clubbing many of the protesters. So it was a real melee. August Spies was so incensed by what happened at the McCormick Reaper factory that he went to his publishing office and he wrote what was called a revenge circular, calling for the workers to, quote, destroy the hideous monster that seeks to destroy you. That leaflet was titled Working Men to Arms. He also scheduled a meeting for the next evening, May 4th, to rally about the two workers that had been killed by police at the McCormick Reaper factory to be held May 4th, 1886 at a place called Haymarket. So the stage had been set. So Patrick, I visited the Haymarket this spring. Wow. So let's play that audio. It's May 4th, 2020, about 10.30 p.m. And I am at the Haymarket Monument in the West Loop on the 134th anniversary of the Haymarket riot. Unlike the evening of 1886, where there were several hundred people here at the site, this evening during the COVID-19 pandemic, the streets are deserted and I am alone at the site, which is eerie with only the sound of the trains passing by on Lake Street. It began at 7.30 p.m. at the corner of Des Plaines and Randolph. A wagon was parked next to an alley on the east side of the street on displays about a half block south between Lake and Randolph. This wagon, usually used to haul produce and goods, was actually the platform for the speakers that evening who spoke of socialism. These socialists and anarchists who planned this demonstration thought that 20,000 people would attend, but in fact only about 2,500 showed up. The first speaker was August Smith. And as he shouted from the wagon in an age before microphones, there were those in the crowd who recognized Carter Harrison, mayor of Chicago, as he lit his cigar. He said to a friend who was concerned that the anarchist might want to attack him, the mayor said, I want the people to know that the mayor is here. 
The chief of police, Captain John Bonfield, known as Blackjack, did not always see eye to eye with the mayor, especially when it came to anarchists. Bonfield had stationed 167 riot police nearby. For all the talk of revolution, the crowd was well behaved. In fact, as he departed that night, Mayor Harrison stopped by the Displains police station to tell Captain Bonfield that the event was a quiet one and that Bonfield should send the riot police home. But Blackjack did not. By about 10.30 that evening, 134 years to the minute as I stand here, this event was winding down and there was a threat of rain as there is tonight, ironically. Bonfield's reinforcements began to move through the crowd, their weapons drawn, according to eyewitnesses. The speaker was Samuel Fielden, standing on the delivery wagon. No one saw the person who threw the bomb, the sparks trailing, that rolled onto Displane Street for the advancing police. There was a deafening explosion, an explosion so loud that Mayor Harrison heard it in his bedroom at his mansion on Ashland Avenue near Union Park, about a mile and a half from here. When the smoke cleared, there were seven policemen dead, with 60 police injured. There was no precise accounting as to the dead and injured among the crowd. The newspaper accounts varied. As a labor organizer, Mother Jones, said about the aftermath of Haymarket, quote, the city went insane, unquote. All right, that was cool, Chris. You were on Displains Avenue between Lake and Randolph Street. Haymarket was on the east side of the street. Well, as you can hear from the audio when I was there, you could hear the Lake Street L. So, Patrick, since several of the anarchists were foreign-born, this led to xenophobia from the newspapers stating that they were not Americans, number one. And again, because of such violence, the leading capitalists of Chicago, like Marshall Field, raised money for the construction of armories around town, and even the army post, which would eventually be named Fort Sheridan. So Fort Sheridan is directly a consequence of yes. the Haymarket incident. They were freaked out. Now the good news is, is these armories are still around. I saw play at one of these armories on the north side. They're big. Yeah, oh yeah, there's we, several set up around the city. So the police arrested several suspects for the Haymarket incident, but no one knew who actually threw the bomb. They rounded up and arrested seven anarchists, but not Albert Parsons because they could not find him. However, he returned the first day of the trial on June 21st. He had fled the city, but returned to face the music. The state's attorney was Julius Grinnell. In his closing arguments, he said, quote, laws on trial, anarchy is on trial, these men have been selected, picked out by a grand jury, and indicted because they were leaders. They are no more guilty than the thousands who follow them. Gentlemen of the jury, convict these men, make examples of them, hang them, and you save our institutions, our society. Wow. So Patrick, how long do you think it took to decide the verdict? Three hours. Oh, that's pretty quick. And that's when the verdict of guilty was read. The Chicago Tribune's headline that day said, the scaffold awaits seven dangling nooses for the dynamite fiends. Wow. So immediately there were plans among the wives of some of the convicted men, Parsons and Spees, to fight for clemency. The appeal went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Two of the defendants, Samuel Fielden and Michael Schwab, asked for commutation. 
And in fact, on November 10th, 1887, Fielden and Schwab did in fact get their death sentences commuted to life in prison, unlike their colleagues who were to hang the next day. Louis Lig, who had been found guilty, committed suicide before the hangman could claim him. The condemned men, Albert Parsons, August Spees, George Engel, and Adolf Fischer were hanged before a large crowd. The funeral of the men was the largest anyone had seen up to that time in Chicago. The final resting place was Waldhelm Cemetery in Forest Park, and 200,000 people paraded down Milwaukee Avenue towards the special trains that were to run to the cemetery. So, Patrick, Samuel Gompers of the American Federation of Labor said that the bomb thrown at Haymarket not only killed policemen, it also killed the eight-hour movement. Dominic Pasiga picks up the story. But once the bomb was thrown and these cops were killed, many of them were from, by the way, Old St. Patrick's Parish. Or yeah, close too far. To, close to where the bomb was thrown, yeah. So when they were killed, most of them were killed by friendly fire, which often happens in a panic situation. Then there was this tremendous reaction against the anarchists and against all labor unions. And, you know, they sort of just reacted against it. Armour and Company, Swift and Company, the other meatpackers all kept the eight-hour day for a while because they were afraid to close it down. It was too much support. But they eventually, within a few months, began to move against it. And then there's this, the big strike in 1886 in the stockyards, which uh, is lost by the Knights of Labor. They bring in a lot of scabs, a lot of strike breakers. Uh, there are riots. Pinkertons. Pinkertons come in. Uh, Pinkertons, yeah. are, uh, for those of you who don't know, were armed guards, uh, supposedly security guards, but they were really the armed soldiers of industry. Yeah, they were thugs. They were thugs, and they often, yeah. often killed people and were held unaccountable because they were police officers. You know, they were sworn in. And so it was a pretty bad fight and eventually was, was smashed. There are three operatives in any strike, maybe four. There's management, there's the workers, there's the local government, and there's the federal government. Most of the time, local government and federal government sides with management, in, in, at least in the 19th and early 20th century. That changes in the 1930s and 40s. And so you had military occupation of the city again. Chicago was the first American city to be occupied after the Civil War in 1877 during the railroad strikes. Then it was occupied again in 1886, and it was occupied again in 1894. Pullman strike, which was also big in the stockyards. And then, of course, from that point on, federal troops generally did not show up until 1968. And it's funny because if you open the newspaper today and you read certain conservative viewpoints, mm -hmm. they talk like this. Oh, yes about moving into the neighborhoods and cleaning up crime. Right, right. So this is a strain. This is a strain that runs through, as, as anti-immigration feeling is a strain. No, nothing's against the Irish and the Germans. Later on, the American Protective Association against Poles and Lithuanians and Jews. The doors are closed in 1924. There was a tremendous desire by many in the United States not to let displaced persons in after World War II, led by the Chicago Tribune. What a shock. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Colonel McCormick? Yes, Colonel McCormick's <laughs> Tribune. It goes in back and forth, you know, in, in sort of cycles. Well, I, I learned from your book that one of the things the stockyards had going for it was this melting pot. Yes. Although in the, when it came to the strike, that hurt it because it was hard to unify the Czechs and the Poles and the Irish. And right. Because, you know, maybe they didn't understand this O'Connell guy. Right. And weren't so charmed by it. Right. And also, you know, you would bring groups in that were not close to each other, let's say, in Europe. 
And Poles had nothing to do with the Irish in Europe, eight hundred, nine hundred miles away. Poles did not know African Americans in Europe. Poles and Czechs actually cooperated a lot of times, mm. and their bond was very close. Helped actually form a democratic machine under Anton Cermak. So, Chris, you found a review of the trial making a case that it was a pretty severe shotgun justice there. Yeah, miscarriage of justice. Yes, you're right, Patrick. Governor John Altgeld, an attorney. Which I'm assuming the street Altgeld is named after. Yes. So John Altgeld was governor, not during the Haymarket, but later. Some of the anarchists were still living because their sentences were commuted. They weren't executed like the other men. Mm -hmm. So Altgeld writes a pardon for these men. And as part of this pardon, he lays out his evidence that he thought that this jury was rigged. And Altgeld gives an amazing description about how crooked it was. And we'll post on our website the link to the Altgeld pardon. But it's a tremendous document. It's only 19 pages. So I thought I would just pick out some of the points. First, that the jury which tried the case was a packed jury, selected to convict. Second, that according to the laws laid down by the Supreme Court, both prior to and again since the trial of this case, the jurors, according to their own answers, were not competent jurors, and the trial was therefore not a legal trial. Third, the defendants were not proven to be guilty of the crime charged in the incident. So how did they do this? First of all, they packed the jury. And I'm basically just reading from the pardon, Patrick. The judge appointed Henry Rice to be a special bailiff to go out and summon such men as he might select to act as jurors. It's always a dangerous practice for it gives the bailiff absolute power to select a jury that is favorable to one side. So Altgelt writes, It is shown that he boasted while selecting jurors that he was managing this case that these fellows would hang as certain as death. He quotes from the transcript of the jury selection. Here's one example. George N. Porter, a grocer, was asked if he had an opinion regarding the guilt of the defendants. He said the following, quote, Why, we've talked about it then and there. There's a great many times that I have always expressed my opinion. I believe what I have read in the papers. Believe that the parties are guilty. I would try to go by the evidence. But in this case, it would be awful hard work for me to do it. He was kept as a juror. Another person, H.N. Smith, he said, quote, He was prejudiced, had quite a decided opinion as to the guilt or innocence of the defendants, that some of the policemen were his personal friends. He was kept on the jury. One case, a man was friends with one of the injured policemen, and he was kept on the jury. It sounds like, and I read the transcript, either the judge and or the prosecutor would browbeat these jurors into saying, well, but couldn't you set that aside, basically, and, and be objective? And they're like, well, maybe. And then they're like, okay, you're in. <laughs> <laughs> right. So they totally stacked the jury with people that were really predisposed to call these anarchists guilty. Right. Here's another one. This is Mr. Allen. He was grilled as to whether he had any prejudice. He told the attorney he was prejudiced to the defendants. In fact, he said he'd already talked about the Haymarket case with his friends, and some of those friends were the actual policemen that had been injured, and he was kept on the jury. And so in contrast to this day and age, if you said anything of that nature in today's court, you'd be tossed out as a potential juror right away. Totally. And they were I mean, the judge would just toss him out. The defense attorney wouldn't even have to use one of his objections. 
And Altgeld just goes through one after another. He just lists them because he's making his argument. Right. Boom, 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 boom. It's very compelling. It was obvious that these men were going to be found guilty. Altgeld also makes the argument. He says the bomber was never named. Nobody ever knew who the bomber was, which was kind of beside the point. Yeah. They didn't really care. They got some guys, some anarchists. Let's just try them because they're taking place of the bomber. Right. And it seemed as though the point wasn't to find out who actually threw the bomb. The point was to find some scapegoats. So Altkelt makes his argument. Then he turns his attention to the police, specifically one guy, Captain John Blackjack Bonfield. He was the commissioner. I got to assume Blackjack is both a badge of honor and a bit of a slur because the Blackjack was the club that the policeman carried around with him on a patrol. Let's just say it was an accurate nickname. Now he goes into great detail about the brutal rule of Blackjack Bonfield. He even quotes a letter from the head of People's Gas sent to the mayor asking for the police to stop clubbing People's Gas employees. Wow. All right, here's some details, okay? A number of employees of this company opening a trench for the laying of gas pipe. A crowd of men came surging down the street from the west. So basically the police were behind this crowd, okay? Captain Bonfield and his force appeared upon the scene and began apparently an indiscriminate arrest of persons. Among others arrested were Edward Kane, Mike Kerwin, Dan Diamond, Dennis Murray, Patrick Brown. No one of these persons had any connection with the striker or guilty of obstructing the cars of the railway company. Sound like a bunch of Irish ditch diggers. Basically, right. (laughs) In fact, Mr. Kerwin had just arrived at the toolbox and had not yet taken out his shovel. And he was arrested and thrown on a streetcar as a prisoner. When upon the car, he called to his friend saying, hey, take care of my shovel. Thereupon, Bonfield struck him a violent blow with the club upon his head, inflicting a serious wound, laying open his scalp and saying as he did so, I'll shovel you. Another employee, Edward King, was also arrested. Two of the police seizing him, one by each arm, and he was carried up upon the car, and Bonfield struck him with the club upon his head. Both of these men were seriously injured and for a time disabled from attending to their business. Both of these men, with blood streaming from cuts upon their heads, were hustled off to the police station and locked up. Well, and you can imagine, too, this is when there's no health insurance. You know, so, they could be out of a job for weeks at a time and not get paid. This letter was sent by Mr. Billings, the vice president of People's Gas, Coke and Light Company, saying, please stop beating my employees. Yeah. All right, here's just another letter from Mr. Robert Ellis. I kept a market at 974 West Madison Street. I was in my place of business waiting on customers and stepped to the door to get a measure of vegetables. The first thing I knew as I stood on the step in front of my store I received a blow over the shoulders with a club and was seized and thrown off the sidewalk into a ditch being dug there. I had my back to the person who struck me, but on regaining my feet, I saw that it was Bonfield who had assaulted me. Two or three officers then came up. I told them not to hit me again. They said, go and get in the car. And I told them I couldn't leave my place of business as I was alone there. They asked Bonfield and he said, take him right along. They then shoved me into the car and took me down to the street to a patrol wagon in which I was taken to the Lake Street Station. I was locked up there from 8 a.m. in the morning till 8 o'clock in the evening and then taken to the Displane Street Station. I was held there a short time and then gave bail for my appearance and got back to my place of business at 9 o'clock that night. And again, Altgeld quotes letter after letter after letter after letter. About about Blackjack. About Blackjack, yeah. 
But you know, Governor Altgeld paid a price for granting this pardon. When he ran for re-election, he was burned in effigy and lost to Republican John Tanner. When asked about the pardon after his defeat, he said, no man's ambition has a right to stand in the way of performing a simple act of justice. As an attorney, he joined Clarence Darrow's law firm, but died in 1902 at the age of 55. So a few years ago, there was a new edition of the Altgeld Pardon published with a new introduction added by Leon Dupre, who was the law partner of our next guest on the podcast. Since we were doing a podcast on labor history, we thought it would be appropriate to talk to Tom Gagan, not only an attorney who had experience with labor law, but also an author of important books about unions and democracy. So as you recall, Patrick, we sat down with Tom Gagan on a cold February evening at his law offices of Dupre, Schwartz, and Gagan. That's right. And it was, I think, the last live interview we had done prior to the shutdown. It was. I mean, none of us knew that at the time. No. And we talked about labor and Chicago's role in its history, and perhaps most importantly, the role unions can play in the present. I had first met Tom Gagan after reading his book, Which Side Are You On? They're really a compelling story, part memoir, about his experience as a young attorney. We asked Tom about those times when he was one of the legal members for the United Mine Workers. Every day every working day, the secretary that I shared with Rich Trumka, who's now the president of the AFL-CIO, Georgia Thompson, used to log in some lawsuit that had been filed by a coal company against a wildcat strike. I mean, people were just wildcatting all over the country. Every other day, it seemed, the operators would file lawsuits, and our job was to defend them. One of the first cases I worked on was Peabody Coal Company versus UMW, which was a consolidation of about 100-something lawsuits that Peabody had filed against the UMW for various wildcat strikes during the term of the contract. All we did was fight injunctions. It was a very restless, younger, minor population, although I shouldn't put too much on youth. The older guys were pretty militant, too. Now, the miners have always had a kind of a history of violence. Was it the Molly Maguires? Oh, sure, yes, yeah. which he, continued until my time there. Tony Boyle murdered his rival, Jock Yablonski. I worked on cases when I first showed up there that were fought in the 1950s, and they were all about how the mine workers had gone around dynamiting the tipples, you know, in a particular town. Oh, my God. In Harlan County, there was a lot of gunplay. The Harlan County strike was going on back then. If you've ever seen the movie Harlan County, USA, I was working at the mine workers at the time. I'm not in the movie. Did you ever feel threatened? No, but I stayed in D.C. Okay. uh, But one of the people I worked for was murdered in a hotel one night in D.C. We always wondered, curious about the circumstances. Sam Littlefield, really remarkable guy. He was the district representative president of Alabama. And the first case I worked on was with Sam Littlefield. We were protesting the importation of South African coal into Mobile because it was, we said it was essentially mined by indentured labor under penal sanction in violation of the Tariff Act of 1930. You had to prove that the U.S. had enough coal to meet its own domestic needs. And so the issue became whether on the spot market for short-term use there was enough coal available. I wanted to ask you about your law partner, Len Dupre. I always admired him from afar. Yeah. He, he was an alderman, for those that don't know, for a long time. 55 to 75. Okay. I know one story, Len Dupre tried to introduce an ordinance 
in Mayor Richard J. Daly's city council meeting to name a park in honor of Emmett Till. And mm. Mayor Daly shut his microphone off. <laughs> oh. In the city I, council? In city council, yeah. oh yeah. It wasn't the only time he did that. Right. You know, Len was a union side labor lawyer, and that was a big part of his identity prior to becoming an alderman. His main union client was the Illinois Nurses Association. He and I did a lot of work for them, sky caps and different people like that over okay. the years. And he was alderman from Hyde Park? Yes. Okay. And he was friends with Frida Kahlo. Well, friends might be an exaggeration, but he took her to the movies once. That's he and cool. Marianne went down to visit Trotsky. <laughs> As and one does. As one does. Trotsky was living with Diego Rivera and uh, Rita Kahlo. Diego Rivera was hard up. And so Len and Marion decided to pay Diego Rivera to do a portrait of Marion, which still exists. It's at the Smart Gallery. Oh, my God. That's it's amazing. A, yeah, it's an amazing portrait. How did you meet him? In the Sadlowski campaign, when Ed Sadlowski ran for president of the Steelworkers in 1976-77, I came out to Chicago under the auspices of the Association for Union and Democracy to be a lawyer to help ensure a fair election when Sadlowski was running against Lloyd McBride, who was the successor to I.W. Abel, who was the successor to McDonald. It was a rank-and-file election for presidency of the Steelworkers. Ed Sedlowski was 37 years old and very militant and very much a democratic old-style left-wing union leader that would have been a bridge to this student left, the anti-war left that I had hoped to see, and he lost. Sedlowski was sued during the election by the United Steelworkers and by the McBride campaign here in Illinois, and we needed a lawyer here in Chicago. Len had represented Sedlowski in seeking to overturn the district director election, which he lost, and it was rerun, and Sedlowski won it the second time. So I was sent up on a snowy December night to knock on the door of the Dupre's, the snow blowing, very Dickensian uh, moment. <laughs> I was shivering outside, and they brought me in, and I started working with him. And then I went back to the UDC after the Sadlowski lost the election and worked at the U.S. Department of Energy in the policy office for two years and wanted to go back into being a private sector lawyer and had various ideas. And one night I was out here visiting and talking to Len and made some casual remark, oh, it'd be nice to work with you. I wasn't really that serious. I thought he was retired. And he said, oh, well, why don't we do that here from 79 on? It's funny how one or two people in your life can make a big difference on your trajectory. Sure, of course. Yeah. You don't know it till much later, of course. He must have been a real pleasure to, to just be in the room with. Oh, sure. Glessner House, have you ever been there? It was saved by Marion Debray. Was it really? Yeah. They did a lot of saving of structures. Down on 18th and Prairie? Yeah. Uh, Marion Debray saved it. Battle of Fort Dearborn took place at 18th and Prairie. Chicago has been occupied, I think it's been seven times since the Great Chicago Fire. The first time was because of the fire. General Sheridan came in. The rest of the time, it was because of strikes. And I can't think of a U.S. city, a northern city that has been occupied. Obviously, a southern city like Richmond during the Civil War was occupied. But a northern city occupied by federal troops because of labor strife? Yes. It just goes to show how fanatically afraid the blue bloods of the city were of the common man. There was a bond here between the political left and the working class, which doesn't exist anymore because the working class doesn't live here. There are plenty of people who are working and have high school degrees, but sometimes their citizenship status is murky, so oh. they're hesitant to or organize. 
or they don't have skills to withhold in the way that people did back in the old manufacturing economy, so it's harder to engage in concerted activity. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of working people here, but working people who are able to disrupt the economy by withholding their skills the way the railroad employees did and the steel mm -hmm. workers did. Or say the workers are currently doing in France with the, with or the strikes. currently doing in France. Yeah. Or could do here. They've been dispersed, you know, geographically. Yeah. I think it's really important to note that Chicago is, the working class is just, there's been a diaspora of it. The people used to form that core. And the link between people who are politically left inside the city and those people who are pushed out of this knowledge economy, high-tech city, it's been broken. And so you have kind of this geographic distance now between progressives and working people, and you have so many working people who are not all of them, but certainly those who are not minorities and have some interest in fighting discrimination lining up with Trump. Tom, how would you define working people as you see it? Yeah, well, it's a murky definition. Yeah. There's the employee definition of the NLRA, which yeah. is, excludes a lot of managerial employees who are probably somewhat to the left of the people they supervise. Mm -hmm. So I think it's an elusive concept. I think it's certainly wrong to think that college-educated people are not working people or that the pilots who make 400000 a year aren't union material. They are. To some extent, it's kind of a state of mind. But I do think it's helpful to differentiate between those with college diplomas and those without, because that's a huge divide in this country. It's yes. sort of 70-30. The divide within that 30%, there's also a class divide between those who are struggling with debt and going through public universities and those who come out of elite or near-elite schools and have access to better employment as soon as they come out, mm -hmm. who are on the commanding heights, as Marx would say, of the knowledge economy and those who aren't, yeah. even within that college education sector. So it's complicated. I just wrote this article in this New Republic about attacking this notion of liberal Democrats that the answer is to bring everybody into college, which creates a lot of cultural resentment because it's effectively a message to high school educated people or people without these four-year degrees or people who are not on the Obama, Clinton, Bernie Sanders, or Elizabeth Warren, college for all sort of Kool-Aid drinking bandwagon. <laughs> yeah. It's a message that it's too late for you. Mm -hmm. You know, the Republicans never go to NASCAR rallies and tell people that they really should have gone to college. That's true. The Democrats are dumb enough to actually do that. And I mean all of them, from the center all the way to the far left part of the working class feel that they're being written off because the money isn't being invested in them. They know that. And yeah. it creates a different kind of resentment, not just against the employer, but against the world mm -hmm. and against the government and against the people who are in this elite. Plenty of people in the elite are Republicans. I would say the majority of them are. But it's especially galling that the party of the working class is headed by people who are college-educated elite and arguing for this kind of investment but clueless as to what is really happening and how people are excluded. Well, for example, you talked about how we have these different spheres of thinking about unions and work. I came into Chicago to work a campaign. I sat next to a union rep, and he was on the phone. He was trying to negotiate a woman to be rehired because she was four cents short on a particular transaction, and she was fired. I couldn't believe it, sitting there, that this poor young woman was fired for four cents. And I thought, this is not Dickens, this is Chicago in the 1990s. I was kind of stunned by it, that this sort of 
greedy bosses with cigars fire this woman for four cents, that this still goes on. Absolutely. I knew it inherently because my grandfather worked at Miller and Hart at the stockyards. He spent 30 years there, and then he was unceremoniously dumped along with thousands of others when they just pulled out of town and stuck everybody with no pension, no training, and that was it, like 1952 or 53. It's going on right now. Mondelez Bakery, and they've laid off 600 people. They were making 25 27 $28 an hour, which is so precious in this city and neighborhoods, and suddenly... We are moving to a knowledge economy, and the real issue is opening up that economy for people rather than having people do routinized things that mm. require little or no investment in them. Can I just ask you in a line or two, just summarize final thought on, on labor in Chicago history? Well, there were two poles in the American economy. There's New York, which is finance and capital, and Chicago, which was manufacturing and production. And I think for that reason, and the fact that the railroad industry was so heavily concentrated in Chicago, everything ran through Chicago, mm -hmm. the labor movement in manufacturing and transportation was focused out here in a way that it wasn't in the East. Mm -hmm. And that it was also out here in the Midwest where you had this mass population of farmers who were getting screwed. So this was the center of kind of left activity in the late 19th century. Not that there wasn't any in New York or New England, but it was out here where the real mass actions were taking place, where there was lots of new political coalitions that were connected with or affiliated in some way with labor. So that a radical lawyer back then, like Clarence Darrow, would spend most of his life until he was an old lawyer defending the labor movement. And that was the cutting edge of the left back then, the labor movement out here in the Midwest and the farther west. And now it's Trump territory, and it's kind of a tragedy that that has happened. Still, I think the part of the country where potentially there is the most hope for any resurgence of labor. If it doesn't start out here, it's not going to start anywhere is sort of one way of looking at it. Now, that's very parochial, but I suppose as a Chicago labor lawyer, it's what you would expect from somebody who's lived his whole life out here. Labor has deep roots in Chicago as well. Yeah, and the Midwest. Yeah. And Chicago's really kind of the capital of the Midwest. It's not the right. capital of anything, really. It's not a political capital. It's not the commercial capital. It's not the media capital. It's not the literary capital. But it is the capital of this particular region. And the wonderful thing about the Midwest is that, and about Chicago in particular, is that there's no place even now, although the working class is spread out, I'm speaking of the Midwest generally, that is such a cross-section of America. Hmm. Maybe it's because it's out here that you can be truly American because you're the farthest away from the coast, right? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so here in the heartland. You can go native out here in a way. Our true American character develops out here. So if there's any hope for social democracy in the labor movement, it's got to start out here or be connected with the Midwest in some way. And if the Midwest flips, you know, Trump is out. That's a great observation. Interesting. Thank you, Tom. Sure. Yeah, very thanks much. very much. Patrick. We are recording this episode on Labor Day 2020. That's true. Appropriately enough. The idea of a commemoration of the working men actually came out of the push for the eight-hour day. 
It was proposed in 1885 by the American Federation of Labor. As we learn in this episode, that started the next year on May the 1st, 1886. Three days later was the Haymarket bombing. Later, unions wanted to continue the May 1st date to celebrate labor, but others were uneasy with the association with Haymarket. So President Grover Cleveland signed into law the Labor Day holiday on the first Monday in September, far enough away, it seems, from the events of May 4th, 1886. Mm, so interesting. he basically de-radicalized the date. And in today's Sun-Times, there's an ad here that I she, cut out for you. flipped out, yep. The women and men of the labor movement have fought for working people across Chicago and Cook County for more than a century. We keep the economy going day after day, standing up for workers and supporting those hit by hard times. Through it all, we stick together, and that's nothing short of heroic. Now, what are they standing in front of? The entrance of the Union Stockyards there. See, all roads lead to the stockyards, Patrick. Oh, boy. I mean, there's so many Chicago connections here. So, Patrick, we were talking about how events are memorialized. In 1889, a nine-foot statue to the policeman killed at Haymarket was erected at Halston and Des Plaines near the Haymarket. Right. It is a statue of a policeman holding up his right hand, and the inscription reads, In the name of the people of the state of Illinois, I command peace. The statue was modeled after Officer Thomas J. Birmingham who, during the World's Fair of 1893, actually was stationed next to the statue of himself and would tell those who visited the story of the Haymark incident. So he was stationed near the site of the statue. Near the site. He was assigned, at least for the World's Fair, to be at the statue to describe the events that took place. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, that's a nice story, right? Yeah. Doesn't end well. Uh, what do you mean? Alas, Officer Birmingham was fired from the force after it was found that he was fencing stolen merchandise. Ah. (laughs) And the saga of the statue in his likeness doesn't end there. In 1927, a streetcar conductor, who apparently didn't like the police, made his streetcar purposely jump the rails and plowed into the statue. The monument was repaired, but moved west to Union Park. Well, that's not the end of the story, Patrick. During anti-Vietnam rallies, the statue was coated in black paint. Then, a year later, the statue was literally blown up, not once, but twice, by the weathermen. Oh, well, that's ironic. A callback to the beginning of this program. That's right. So by this time, Mayor Richard J. Daley had had enough. He placed the statue under 24-hour surveillance. It was later moved to the courtyard of the Chicago Police Training Academy, and now it is found at police headquarters at 35th and State. The Haymarket site itself has a modernist statue. The monument designed by Mary Broger is that of the speakers on a wagon, which rests on the exact spot where the event took place. I wonder how many people pass by that location don't even know the significance of it. And there's one more spot worth mentioning, Patrick. It isn't even a monument or a statue, but it's a street name. Yes. Remember Captain Bonfield? Yeah. Blackjack, the police chief? He was like, pretty free with his billy club. Yeah. yeah, he liked hitting innocent people with his baton. Well, thanks to the sleuthing of retired detective Tony Romanowski, who is a fellow member of the Windy City Historians. Sure, yes. Tony's a good guy. I learned that there is a street name for Bonfield in Bridgeport. It's a short street. In fact, it runs southeast from Archer Avenue down along Bosley Park to 31st Street. It ends Kitty Corner to the Monastery of the Holy Cross at 3111 South Aberdeen. And it's not too far from our favorite coffee house, Patrick, Bridgeport Coffee, with their Bubbly Creek and Hard Scrabble blends. That's right. 
So after the Haymarket incident, a newspaper published a story that Captain Bonfield was taking bribes. So what did Blackjack do? He went to the offices of the paper and had all the editors arrested. Don't tell me he clubbed him too. Uh, well, I wonder if he hit him with this club, yeah. uh, his baton. Because of this, he left the force in shame. So thank you, Tony Romanowski, for pointing that out to me. As we leave this program, I'd like to wish everyone a happy Labor Day, but also to leave you with a funny story. So Patrick, Tom Gagan has had many interesting law cases, some he's written about in his books, and perhaps no opponent was as big as the Lucas Museum. If I recall, George Lucas, the famous producer and director of Star Wars and other movies, wanted to put a museum on the lakefront in Chicago. Yes, for like a dollar or ten dollars or something like that, by McCormick Place. Yeah. And Tom was hired by Friends of the Park to oppose this. Basically, he was going up against a Death Star. <laughs> it was probably Tom, and that may have been it, against a raft of a dozen or more attorneys for the city and for Lucas. Here's this one guy pleading the case for the common man of Chicago to preserve the lakefront to be free for all. But what Tom had on his side was something you and I have grown to appreciate, a sense of 16th century law. Are you going to explain this? Or? No, no, I'm going to let or him is he explain gonna it. Tell it. I'm okay. going to let him explain it. All so right. we'll go to the tape. Thank you for listening. We use something that should be state common law, but by some eccentric Supreme Court decision in the 19th century, sort of turned into federal common law, known as the public trust doctrine, which okay. holds that land that's been recovered from the lake bed, just like lake bed land itself, is held in public trust not by the state, but by the state as trustee for the people. So even the state can't give it away. There's a U.S. Supreme Court decision which affirms this as the law, and it is a kind of classification of property so that you could arguably say that the due process clause prevents the alienation of this to a private party. Your client was Friends of the Park. It was. And the federal judge bought your argument. Well, at least he didn't throw it out, and not losing the case was, in effect, winning it. Mayor Emanuel was sort of your nemesis. And Kirkland and Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> but if anything, you kind of gummed up the works enough that Mr. Lucas was like, you know what, I don't want to fight this for 10 years. Yes. I'd love to take the credit, Chris. But <laughs> I, I think that uh, Judge Darrow did a remarkable job. He was a very courageous judge. The late Judge Darrow. We just appreciate using historical thinking to come up with this argument. We go back to the 16th century if we have to, to represent our clients. You know. <laughs> Audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick McBriarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hoggenson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.